The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 20th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Today's high in Phoenix, 120 degrees, which means they grounded the planes. Not all planes, the really big ones can take off, but the little ones, even the medium-sized ones, regional flights, cannot fly in that heat. And I'm glad, well, I'm not glad that the planes are not taking off. I am glad that everyone's going to be safe. I'm just glad to have some way in my head to get my brain around what 120 degrees means. Because there are all these record highs being set more and more often, you know, Department of Chinese hoax. But not just in the United States. I was reading a story about Lahore, Pakistan and highs of 127. And it's hotter now in Rihad, Saudi Arabia than it usually is this time of year. But I never know what to do with that. 95 degrees, I understand. It's really hot. You jack it up to 105, I guess it's a little hotter. I don't know how to conceptualize, how to feel internally the difference between, say, 96 degrees and 126 degrees. I just don't know how to do it. So, I mean, that's a 30-degree difference. I get the difference between 30 degrees and 60 degrees. Sure, as a percentage, it's a little different. But I just always thought 104 degrees, really hot. 114 degrees, like in Las Vegas where my parents live. You walk out of the house, you burst in the flames in three steps. So what's 128 degrees? You walk out of the house, burst in the flames in two steps. So I'm glad to have know this one big figure. At around 118, they ground the flights. Good, good, good to have that in the back of my head. On the show today, I realize I'm in an argumentative mood. I heard a report on NPR based on a report on an NPR podcast about how Muslims get more attention for their terrorist acts than others do. And I questioned that report, and I give the results of that questioning to you. Lots of questions, some conclusions. Feel free to dispute. That's what I do. But first, yesterday we had on the show Tom Shapiro. He's a Brandeis professor who wrote about toxic inequality. And what we talked about yesterday was basically the subtitle of that book, How America's Wealth Gap Destroys Mobility, Deepens the Racial Divide, and Threatens Our Future. And today, we're going to talk about the title of that book, Toxic Inequality. Just how toxic, just how unequal. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point. 
but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm joined now once again by Tom Shapiro, author of Toxic Inequality. And let me start by saying this book filled me up with horror at the state of affairs of race and racism. And there are so many examples that he talked about where race comes into play, where the appalling immiseration of my fellow countrymen gives me pause. How could they not? We talked about that yesterday. And I want to talk about something a little different today. I am not convinced that this is all something that should be called toxic inequality. So let's talk about both of those words. My question to you, Tom, is does toxic inequality have an actual definition as you use it? So the title is really intentional. It's one I had to fight with the publisher Mm -hmm. to keep at the end of the day, and it's one of the little battles I won. I wanted a title that really made a sharp distinction between where we are in the United States today with, if excuse the expression, the -the run-of-the-mill inequality that we've always had Mm -hmm. and always will have. I mean, every recorded market society and most other societies have different levels of of inequality. But there's something really different about where we are today. What's different about where we are today, I would just throw out three things that intermesh. One is historic highs of both income and wealth inequality. Uh, going back to the data at least to late 1920s before before the Great Depression. Uh, the data doesn't take us back in, any further than that. Historic highs of both income and wealth inequality that are widening at the same time. The economists really isolate it to the top tenth of one of one percent. Yes, there's is there widening inequality between the twenty fifth and seventy fifth percentile? Yes, yes. Is there widening inequality <laughs> between the fiftieth and the tenth percentile? It's, it's if we use the metaphor of a ladder, the yes. visual metaphor of a ladder, and economic mobility is moving up the rungs of the ladder. Economic mobility has gotten tougher because the rungs on the ladder have gotten further apart. So it's harder to get to the next rung, but it's also easier to slide back down. So essentially, some of the other economists who work more on, on labor market issues talk about how the, the middle, middle income paying jobs are the ones that are disappearing the most. Yes. The jobs we're adding of the top 10 jobs that will be needed in the next 10 years, eight of them are in the low wage sector of the economy. So to me, that's a problem with wages and a problem with immigration. And I want to get to the inequality, but what exactly does the toxic mean? If we were talking about environmentalism, toxicity has a yeah. parts per billion definition. Yeah. So what's the definition? Right, so, 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 so the other, the other parts, the other features of toxic inequality for me include the widening racial wealth gap. Um, which we've we've talked about a little bit, but essentially looking at the same set of families, uh, representative sample, not the nearly 200 that we looked at, which is not representative. In 1984, the racial wealth gap in that set of families was $84,000. It nearly triples uh, by 2013, same set of families, walking through American schools, American culture, American policy, American history, it triples to $245,000 in constant, you know, adjusted, adjusted dollars. 
And then the, the third factor that I would throw in there, all right, those two are bad enough. Mm-hmm. Historic highs and widening income and wealth inequality along with a growing, dramatically growing racial wealth gap. We might think about those in one way if life was getting better, but no, we're seeing the exact opposite. We've seen a stalling and a stagnation in both economic mobility, the ability of families to do better than their parents or over a working lifetime, and for their actual, for their wages, uh, what they can well, that's toxic, their living that's toxic their living immobility standard. then maybe we're talking but it's, it's my, see, i i weave i weave yeah. those together i but weave those together every time i ask you about toxic <laughs> you say it's widening and it's worsening which i agree to but i i would i would concede but i don't know why it's toxic okay. all right so let's go to epigenetics yes <laughs> yes uh let, let's let's scratch the surface on that on that one a bit the medical literature around social determinants of health um, have become a lot clearer, and I think a very high level of consensus these days that show that toxicity of racism mm-hmm. in the ways that it elevates blood pressure, which makes individuals a lot more susceptible to heart disease and a lot of other a lot of other illnesses that are that are really uh, fairly chronic in in not just African American populations but communities of color in in general in the United States. The analog I think here is something I would hypothesize would be a toxic inequality syndrome where repeated, persistent um, situations of job loss, uh, long stretches, prolonged periods of unemployment, uh, being thrown off track after working hard and trying to do the right thing, uh, of medical issues that come along. All of those uh, events don't happen just once. They tend to cascade. Uh, one event tends to pull into another one. And I think over a period of time, what we start to see from that is the same sort of stress that's put on the body um, that then uh, demonstrates or displays itself through uh, through blood pressure, through other kinds of, of, of mechanisms. Okay. And that's what I mean by, by toxic inequality. So I get that. I will concede that that very well could be going on. But the question is then why is it inequality? Why does... The you have the Ackermans in your book. They made three hundred. They have three hundred fifty thousand in savings. Yes. If they had a hundred fifty thousand in savings, would the Auroras be better off? It's not inequality. It's their immiseration. Unless you can make it, the it, case that it is the inequality that's causing the immiseration. <laughs> it's if it's the point one percent, which roughly works out to three hundred thousand mm-hmm. people. If you mm-hmm. cut their wages in half mm-hmm. or their wealth in half, how does it make all the people who are suffering in your book yeah. better? Yep. So I would suggest if, if we were to, to look a little bit at what's, what's called the Whitehall Studies uh, from the UK, um, is very similar to the book Spirit Level in the United States, uh, actually also by two British authors, and, and both make the same point. And, and the point is that as society becomes more stratified, mm-hmm. as it becomes more difficult to move up that economic ladder to the next rung, that yes, inequality is important, but the stratification level uh, the sense of it, the way it settles into communities and perhaps settles into bodies as well is part of what makes it toxic. Now, toxic for me is not just the, the medical metaphor, but it's also the danger that I think over a relatively long period of time, it poses to a democratic society. And I would suggest that as racial pandering and pandering to fears of, of Im- immigrants have become kind of standard fare, not just with this last election, but long before, we've now got Ku Klux Klan 
um, feeling confident enough in Charlottesville, Virginia, to march with torches bought at at, at Target, yeah, uh, w- without hoods. I agree with you, but I don't think that's inequality. I don't think those Klansmen are in the point one percent. Again, I don't know. Maybe a case can be made, and I've read economics on this that it is the rich people who are somehow taking more of the pie. And were it not for the very very rich, the poor would have more. But I've read an equally impressive body of evidence that says that Elon Musk is actually not making anyone poor. If anything, he and Bill Gates and even some of the financial hedge fund guys are actually (laughs) creating wealth that wouldn't be there, not taking from Mm -hmm. anyone else and making people richer. You should be able to make an argument that if we cut the wealth and wages of the top whatever percent, the bottom 50% would be better off. I I don't see that case. Yeah. So so I I, I don't either. Yeah. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind lopping off the wealth (laughs) and income. Uh, We we could talk about what that does or doesn't do. Mm -hmm. There's a tax and, argument. And, and, yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. oh yes. yes. I'd, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to get mm-hmm. into that. Yeah. We don't. It's not. We can't call it tax reform. Yeah. No. That's it, where it, I want to end because I think that that's actually optimistic. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. Finish your point about um, it. even lopping off the incomes and wealth of the, the of the very very top still leaves stagnation and and stalled living standards uh, for the other not I don't want to say other ninety nine percent but from the eightieth eightieth percentile all, all the way down. And at the lower levels, if you will, of of the rungs on the ladder, thirtieth percentile and less, we are seeing an absolute immiseration. Yes, a life is is really getting worse. Yes, and and with current cuts and threats of more cuts and protective programs and programs that that might actually be pathways out of poverty, that is just going to get worse. And I I think that for me is part of the the claim I'm trying to make around toxic inequality. So this for me is the optimistic point where I want to end. It seems. Yes, programs that work are being cut, but the optimism is that we have shown that many programs work. They're underfunded, but they don't have to be underfunded. So what are the things that work? The best known one is probably the earned income tax credit. Mm -hmm. And other than Social Security for the elderly, there's no single one American program that lifts more children, adults, families out of poverty than the earned income tax credit. Now, having said that, you know, I would raise the question, why do we need the earned income tax credit when employers should be paying higher wages so that that's actually not needed? It's actually a federal subsidy uh, for, for employers to, art, to not artificially, but to raise the wages of workers that they don't pay enough money to. The other program, if you will, that I point two is a program called family self-sufficiency. Yeah, it has it has one of these names that you're like, oh, but yeah, it really works. Yeah, the, the acronym is FSS. Yeah. It's family yeah. self-sufficiency. So that, you know what? If that acronym allowed it to get some votes <laughs> in the Senate, fine, because well, it, tell it, what it does. It, it came out of the Labor Department, yeah. and it's essentially an incentive to work. Yeah. Uh, for people receiving uh, subsidies on their rent or in public housing projects, your rent is calibrated by what your income is. So the higher your income is, the more you pay in rent. And there is a, a, a perceived, a constructed disincentive uh, that some people think, well, why should I get a second or third job mm-hmm. or go to that class to get a better job? My rent increases. I'm never going to see it. My pay increases. The rent's going to increase too. So this is what family self-sufficiency does in its genius. You join the program. You set goals for five years. And over the period of five years, instead of your rent going up only as your income increases, Instead of rent goes up, it's put into an escrow account. 
And at the end of five years, every single dollar of that is yours. We have had the the privilege of of evaluating uh, several of these programs, in mostly in the Boston area. And I will tell you, when we first started to look at the data, uh, the first withdrawal of an escrow, somebody out of Lynn Housing Authority took a check for eighteen thousand dollars, which was money that they had, you know, it, yeah. they had they had earned. That's real money. Yeah. <laughs> and they moved out of public housing. Life changing. They money. moved out of public housing when for the housing authority, next person gets to move in, they use it as a down payment on a home. Uh, but that's what family self-sufficiency does. I would suggest a um, a brilliant proven tool um, when it's done right, but most of the programs I would suggest still need to be reformed. And uh, worst of all, it is way under scale. The estimate is that about 5% of people receiving rent subsidies that work, those are the only people that would be eligible, only about 5% are in family self-sufficiency programs. And it would seem that just Section 8 vouchers are fairly successful, yet fairly underfunded as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, and the thing, and further optimism, we don't have to break up the banks or, I mean, if you want to elect Elizabeth Warren, elect Elizabeth Warren, but you don't actually need- I did a, elect her. She's my senator. <laughs> you, that was you. If you, if you, you don't need a radical transformation, it would seem. There are existing programs that just with sufficient funding and, and philosophies that are in the mainstream of both parties, at least the, the stated mainstream should be popular both parties. I mean, it's doable if we wanted to do it. I, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I would also at the same time come back with an example of um, something that I think is, is uh, a totally uh, wrongheaded uh, and needs to be reversed, and that is the tax code. We invest as a society about $200 billion every single year, not one off, mm -hmm. every single year, and it keeps rising with inflation. About half of that, $100 billion, we invest in uh, subsidizing home ownership for middle class and upper middle class families. Yes. About a hundred billion a year in the mortgage interest deduction and, and things around it. Right. We're, subsi we're subsidizing middle class and upper class through that to a hundred billion as opposed to yeah. what poor people could get with the Section 8 vouchers, which with is about 35 billion. Right. Oh, no, no. All public, all, all, all rent public support public. systems. All, rent, all support. rent support systems because they come from different departments of the government mm -hmm. is about 35 to 40 billion. One estimate is that 86% of that hundred billion goes to the top 10% of income filers. That's a lot of, in my estimation, a lot of wasted money that we really could retarget for housing security for a lot of American families that really need it. Thomas Shapiro is professor of law and social policy at the Heller School at Brandeis, where he directs the Institute on Assets and Social Policy. And his book is Toxic Inequality, How America's Wealth Gap Destroys Mobility, Deepens the Racial Divide, and Threatens Our Future. Uh, I enjoyed interrogating the professor. Thank you so much. <laughs> and I, I enjoyed being on the witness stand. You Thank stood you. <laughs> up to the scrutiny well. Thank you. And now the spiel. A truck in London mows down innocents. One day, the driver and his accomplices are Islamic jihadists who jump out and try to stab onlookers. The next day, which is to say two days ago, the perpetrator was an angry white man out for sick revenge. British authorities rightly call both acts of terror. 
They have each dominated the headlines. I listen to the BBC. I read The Guardian online. I have not noticed one getting more or less coverage than the other, but that might come to pass. As these attacks become more frequent, they become less newsworthy. That may not be fair. That is the definition of news. But let's be clear. When it's a Muslim terrorist, some scream from the rooftops or tweet from the White House. When it's a Muslim victim and a white perpetrator, there's less noise from those quarters. And that is why today on NPR, when the perpetrator was identified as a white man, Rachel Martin added, And that profile may be significant in how the media covered the attack. Which led to the introduction of correspondent Shankar Vedantam, their social science correspondent. He cited a study by researchers at Georgia State University. And here's what those researchers found. Here's Erin Carnes. When the perpetrator is Muslim, you can expect that attack to receive about four and a half times more media coverage than if the perpetrator was not Muslim. You see that perpetrator who is not Muslim would have to kill on average about seven more people to receive the same amount of coverage as a perpetrator who's Muslim. That seems high to me. It seems to be saying that for a white person to get the same attention as the shooter at the Pulse nightclub, that man would have to kill, that white man would have to kill 300 or so people, like 200 wouldn't do it. It also suggests that the shooter at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church, who killed nine black parishioners, should have gotten less coverage than the Chattanooga, Tennessee jihadi who killed four Marines. But it seemed to me that the Charleston church killings got a lot more attention. So I looked at the study and I found it has some obvious problems. Now, the study looked at the period between 2011 and 2015, and it relied on the terrorist incidents as documented by the Global Terrorism Database at the National Consortium for the Study of Terrorism and Responses to Terrorism. Here's their definition of terrorism. The threatened or actual use of illegal force and violence by a non-state actor to attain a political, economic, religious, or social goal through fear, coercion, or intimidation. As such, here were some incidents they included as acts of terror. A guy in Virginia throws firecrackers and incendiary devices at a mosque. A New York City man in one night throws Molotov cocktails at a bodega, a crack dealer's house, he gets the address wrong, his in-laws, and a mosque. And he claims he chose the mosque because... It refused to let him use the bathroom in the past. That is a terrorist incident. A number of unsolved arsons at church are coded as terrorist incidents. A man punches a bodega owner and yells, I kill Muslims. Terrorism. Well, why is that terrorism? I put that question to Aaron Miller, who is the program manager for that very same global terrorism database. If the perpetrator makes a statement like that, that sort of suggests there's a broader goal, there's a, a broader purpose to the attack, and it's not an... It's not an incidental, it's not an interpersonal conflict that led to this violence, but it's a broader purpose or goal, like I want to kill all Muslims. We would classify that as as having a political, social, religious, or economic goal, and we would also classify it as having the intent to intimidate or coerce a broader audience beyond the immediate victim. Miller explained to me that the data set was started in the 1970s. They wanted to keep it consistent and the definition consistent. She says that is a good definition of terrorism. And, and it just may be. I'm glad the database exists and gets me to think about if these acts are or aren't terrorism. She allows that reasonable people could certainly disagree if they are acts of terrorism. However, because this is the data set used in the research cited on NPR and by Shankar Vedantam, it has a distorting effect. With such an expansion 
expansive, broad definition of terrorism. It includes many acts that are harassment or antisocial vandalism or heinous hate crimes, and it distorts the following conclusion. We see that only about 12% of them were perpetrated by Muslims, whereas over 50% actually were perpetrated by some far-right cause. But most people don't perceive that as being what the actual threat is. To be clear, that 12% number is disproportionate. Muslims account for just 1% of the U.S. population. But in a rational world, this should mean that 12% of the media's coverage of terrorism would be of terrorism committed by Muslims. Well, in a rational world, there'd be no terrorism. So let's just say in a world not so rational as to preclude terrorism, but rational enough to accurately perceive the threat of terrorism, I disagree. I disagree with that 12% number. I think the denominator is inflated. Were there really 89 terrorism incidents, including every unsolved church arson in the database, punches thrown by bigots? Here's another one, a 7-Up bottle filled with acid and other chemicals that hits near the window of a mosque. The broader the definition of crimes that are called terrorism, the more likely that the perpetrators of those crimes will begin to look demographically more like the overall population. Here's the other big important point. Since this is about media coverage of terrorism, the broad definition comes into play. There's a reason why most of those incidents of terrorism didn't get much news coverage. It's not because they were committed by non-Muslims. It's because they're not really that newsworthy. They don't deserve to dominate national papers and CNN. And those were the only media the researchers surveyed. But there's more. Shankar Vedantam used a peculiar comparison in his extended segment on his Hidden Brain podcast. First, he talked about that Las Vegas couple who gunned down police officers. They left a note on the bodies of the slain officers. It read, this is the beginning of a revolution. They were compared to the Baltimore man who in late 2015 traveled to New York gunned down two NYPD officers sitting in their car. Revenge, he said, for the killings of unarmed black men. I'm putting wings on pigs today, he wrote. They take one of ours. Let's take two of theirs. The incidents both saw two police officers dead. They were motivated by political, if you want to call it that, grievance. They were not covered proportionally. The NYPD murders got much, much more coverage. But I chalk that up to the fact that that is how news works. That was a shocking, angry reaction to a burgeoning social movement, Black Lives Matter, that was dominating the news already. It happened in America's most populous city, the media center of the world. But researcher Aaron Carnes had a different explanation for why Ismael Brinsley, killer of the New York cops, got more attention. Ismael Brinsley received about four and a half times more coverage than the Millers, and he was Muslim. He was Muslim, but his religion seem to have no role at all in the killings, unlike jihadis who carry out their acts in the name of religion. Here, I'll read a New York Times description of him. He struggled with depression, but had no history of hallucinations or other forms of psychosis, unlike his oldest brother who battled schizophrenia. His version of Islam seemed more jumbled than jihadi. And here is how other New York papers describe Brinsley's religion. They didn't. I went back. I read the New York Post and Daily News from days around the shootings, and most articles never mention his religion. A Google search, granted that's not as precise as LexisNexis, but it's illustrative. It returned 63,000 hits for Ismael Brinsley, 14,000 hits for Ismael Brinsley Muslim. A better comparison 
between two terrorists who killed cops to make a political point wouldn't include the Las Vegas couple. They would include Brinsley and the sniper who killed five police officers in Dallas. That sniper, whose murders happened outside the years the researchers were looking at, he wasn't Muslim. And he did get less coverage, but a little less. 2,100 mentions in the LexisNexis database versus the NYPD killers, 2,900. But it was far more proportional than the comparison to white nationalists who killed the Las Vegas cops. In their report, which was titled, Why Do Some Terrorist Attacks Receive More Media Attention Than Others? The authors talk about the Boston Marathon bombers. They account for 20% of all the media coverage in the data set. And they compare them to the Charleston shooter who I mentioned, 7% of all the coverage. Here's what they write of the Boston Marathon bombing. Hypersalient events like this drive media coverage. When people think about terrorism, this is the kind of event that comes to mind. Yet so much is missed. Based on fatalities, there are a few attacks in the data set that received less coverage than we'd expect. They list an attack on a Sikh temple in Wisconsin, killed six. Synagogue in Kansas killed three. And the Charleston shooting that I mentioned killed nine. But there is a big difference between the Boston bombing and these other attacks. While the researchers do norm for fatalities, they don't take injuries into account at all which Aaron Miller of the Global Terrorism Database says is really important. For example, many attacks that receive a lot of attention don't necessarily result in a lot of deaths, but have hundreds of injuries. For example, the Boston Marathon attack, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing had far more injuries than deaths. The Centennial Park bombing in Georgia had far more injuries than deaths. So it's certainly an issue of total casualties. But there's another reason why the Boston Marathon bombing got more coverage than the Charleston shooting, the length of the trial. The trial for the Charleston shooting went on for 35 days in Boston. It lasted 170 days. Every day of each of those trials were covered in the news. There was just almost five times as much of the Boston one. It seems to me that attacks in the name of Islam do receive more coverage and scare us more than attacks by white nationalists or other types of people. To some extent, this is understandable. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, other jihadis profess a goal of acquiring weapons of mass destruction and wiping out tens of thousands at a time. A guy who throws punches in a bodega is not doing that. But then there's what they have actually done. Remember, here's how Shankar Vedantam chooses to contextualize the threat. They're about 1% of the U.S. population, but they carried out about 12% of the terrorist attacks that occurred between 2011 and 2015. Okay, but put another way, since 2001, 95% of all American deaths by terrorists have been at the hands of Muslim terrorists. Overall, I'm glad there's that database keeping track of all incidents, which could conceivably be called terrorism. That's just the dissemination of knowledge. But using that data set in the way these researchers do is misleading. I would also concede to the general point of the research that if it's a Muslim who is involved in a terrorist incident, it does receive more play and it does seem scarier. There are some good reasons for this, but also flat out prejudice. But it's not just prejudice. And it's not nearly as bad or severe as these researchers would have us believe. That's it for today's show. It's so hot, just producer Mary Wilson can't even take flights of fancy. It's so hot that just producer Chris Berube cracked an egg on the sidewalk to see if passersby could at least catch a nice breeze as they tripped and fell on a sidewalk egg. 
Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, can't even sing along to R. Kelly's I Believe I Can Fly It's So Hot. The gist, we have been uncomfortable with singing along to most of R. Kelly's songs for a while, especially the ones deployed in Space Jam. Oomperu, deperu, du peru, and thanks for listening.